I'm not sure there are many things that COVID created. I think it accelerated a number of trends that were already there. There were some titles, the titles that unfortunately we had to uh, we had to close were those that would have got to that position in the next two years. I think some of the changes in, in the advertising revenue mix and the type of work that advertisers are doing, it, it, it it's changed, but it was coming anyway. Um, and I think subscriptions is similar that we'd already seen strong growth in subscriptions. So, so all of those really were trends that we sort of jumped from 2020 to 2023 in a weekend. Hello everybody, welcome to Media Voices. We're a team of three who take a look at all the ins and outs and ups and downs of the media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you've just heard is from Chris Duncan, who is the CEO of UK Publishing at Bauer Media. So he joined the company just a few weeks after lockdown last year. So he talks about what it's been like leading the company during such a turbulent year, some of their wins and losses throughout the pandemic, and what he's doing to prepare Bauer to be a success for the next decade. He also addresses something he was quoted on years ago about thinking only 10 publishing companies will be able to survive on subscriptions. So yeah, listen in after the news roundup to find out what he has to say about that. That one's really annoying because we, yeah, we talk about that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, we quote him wrong, so we'll we'll have to adjust that. Okay, all right. Someone said that Chris Duncan said. Uh, Before that, though, we're going to get straight into our news roundup because right back at the start of us doing this podcast, right back when it was the Media Briefing podcast, we spoke in great length, actually, about the Trump bump and whether that was sustainable. And it has sort of lasted throughout his entire presidency up until now. But, Esther, as this piece of news demonstrates, Mm. it might not have lasted, outlasted the president himself. So what's going on here? I'm going to hold back my rage for, like, (laughs) two minutes. Um, So, basically, um, generally, there's been a Trump slump. Uh, Readership numbers are... It writes itself. It writes itself, (laughs) doesn't it? Readership numbers are on the down, um, particularly for publishers, and I'm quoting from Access here, particularly for publishers that rely on partisan ideology. Oh, no, that's not Access, isn't it? Access, hang on, just a second, because I had a really funny quote. Uh, uh, particularly, and I'm quoting from Access here, outlets most dependent on controversy to stir up resentments. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, a far left, a lot of far left sites are down sort of about 27, 30% left leaning. 17%, far right down up to 44% and right leaning it down 27%. So it's not um, it's not great if you're one of those companies. Um, does anybody want to say anything else uh, reasonable take, before I get started? I, I want to take issue, and this is some, such an American thing, I want to take issue with the far left thing here. Okay. In what their sense? Definition of, well, their definition of far uh, left yeah, okay, is right. Jones. <laughs> Mother yeah. Jones, are you kidding me? So how are we ever going to solve this problem if we don't start labelling these outlets properly? That that's my that's my big takeaway from this. Is right. the analysis is fundamentally flawed? Right. Oh, I feel that that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> okay, but I mean, whether you're left or right, if there's a kind of group of I'm probably getting trouble here, no, but axial, centrist sorry, sorry. publications. 
um, like publications kind of generally in the middle, like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Reuters, they've also seen drops of between sort of 18 and 20%. So it's that's not crazy, it's not it? just the extremes that have been affected yeah. by this. It no, is kind true. of the, the the middle as well. I, th- I thought it was interesting that it was um, it was where the traffic has gone down. So like mm. web, web traffic, social media user sessions, they're all down, but it's particularly engagement on social media. And that, I think, points to the fact that people are getting well not less angry but there's there's less to be outraged about on social media yeah is because that... i don't think people have changed <laughs> <laughs> well is that because trump has been banned from twitter from yeah, facebook that could be part of it. there's wow. less to share there's yeah less to share well i think i think i think it's easy it's definitely eased off like the the three years of the brexit negotiations were, were awful and it's it definitely feels like it's, yeah. it's calmed down just a little bit in the uk it's. I mean, the discourse is still horrendous. Yeah, <laughs> can, I, I can't. I can't. You know, you were talking about news avoidance. Every time I go on there, it's. I've, I've had to stop myself opening, even opening Twitter over, over the course of the weekend, just because it gets me too riled up. Oh, I so think that's, that's, that's because of the football. <laughs> <laughs> this this effectively adds a bit of a um, a warning to any publication that was reliant on this kind of stuff, wasn't it? Okay, I, I have a very ideological view on this, and that is, I just, I just think if you're, if you're a publisher who relies on the kind of madness and outrage and the world descending into chaos for your business model, I, I think this is a kind of a bit of a point that you need to sit and have a look at yourself. And I know, I know, in general, that's how news works, <laughs> and that you know if. You, if there was no bad news, you wouldn't have a, a model generally. But news, the, the the way of telling news that relies on absolute madness, like Trump, like sort of you know the anti-vax and everything that to, to feed your your clicks. And I, th- I think it's it's partly the way that social media has driven this is that you're so reliant on generating that outrage on social media that you have to end up reporting in a way that is just mad. Um, and I, I know a lot of people have sort of said, oh, well, what about the Trump slump for publication, uh, for, for subscriptions, publications that rely on subscriptions? And I don't think it's going to have quite the same effect because I think if you're paying to subscribe to journalism and, and to a publisher, you're not going, you're not subscribing to them for the outrage in quite the same way. Um, I, I might be proved wrong on that, but I, I, was, I don't think I it's going to affect say, subscriptions yeah. in quite the same way. I think that is quite a, uh, if, if that goes against quite a lot of the bets that publishers are making in terms of getting these kind of star columnists signed up. In fact, do you remember there was a huge controversy recently, of, uh, I think it was at the MIT, or could have been the New York Post, about effectively limiting the, the ability of their columnists to make a living outside of the paper because they were worried that their star columnists would go elsewhere. Was I think it was at the Times. I think it's reliant uh, subscriptions are reliant in large part on those kind of controversy generating figures who write op eds for them. Is it though? I, 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 I feel like I feel like if you, you know if you subscribe to somebody like the NYT or the Atlantic, you're not subscribing for one particular point of view, or you're not subscribing because their Trump coverage is particularly outrageous. You, you subscribe because their journalism as a whole is something you you want, you, you know you want to get the package. Whereas oh. if you're commenting on social media, that's mu- like the, the traffic and the drive to that is much more incentivized to be outrageous and, and a bit nutty. I, th- I think you're. I think you're being. Am very I being optimistic. naive? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never say naive. I think that, yeah, I think that there is potentially a bit of a discrepancy there between what newspapers say that people subscribe for and what they do actually subscribe for. Okay, I think it let's does let's set the Google alert because I, I I think probably in a year's time subscriptions will continue to be doing well. Mm. Um, but I mean, we've already seen the traffic. Here. The traffic will, yeah, the the outrage traffic will have fallen off. Yeah. 
But I, I think if, if you're committing money to pay, I, I don't think you're bought into the outrage machine in quite the same way. Oh, no, I completely agree that you are. I completely agree that subscriptions are going to increase. I just don't necessarily think it's going to be for those reasons. I don't also don't think the outrage is going to go away. Oh, there's always something to be outraged about. But... Well, God, we'll, we'll make up a... Newspapers, in a lot of cases, will just make up something to be outraged about. Satanic panic. I find panic. myself strangely conflicted here in agreeing with both of you at the same time. That's quite an unusual position for me. <laughs> I think Esther's right that New York Times or the Atlantic or the Guardian or the whatever Telegraph even oh the fuck I've just I've just actually <laughs> flashed on the Telegraph as an example where <laughs> subscriptions are going up but absolute head case columnists are driving a lot of that traffic mm. So yeah, sorry, so I don't agree with you anymore. I agree with you. <laughs> no, I, 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 know, I did have a point, but it's just evaporated. Well, I think of people, you know, Alison Pearson. Um, well, let's just, let's just leave it there. Um, <laughs> the kind of outrage that follows her on on Twitter at the same time as the Telegraph subscriptions are going up. I don't know. Is there a correlation there? Yeah, probably. Okay, but- actually, but maybe I'm leaning back towards Esther's point of view. <laughs> Because some of, like, say The Sun, for instance, which has had very controversial columnists in the past that, that have always skirted the line, you know, between actually libeling people and then when they go too far, The Sun gets rid of them. But The Sun doesn't have a successful subscription. It's a worthless asset. And also, actually, GB News traffic's uh, viewing figures have gone through the floor. So actually, maybe I'm starting to come back to this <laughs> point of view. Do you think people tune in and listen to this just to hear us think shit through on the fly? Uh, possibly, yeah. I mean... Oh, what do you mean on the fly? No, we're supposed to be presenting the idea that we think about this all week, nonstop. But you know, I think maybe maybe that's kind of the point I'm aiming for. <laughs> Again, probably like the um, is that actually after the f- like four, five, six years we've had since David Bowie died, there's been like that took a turn I wasn't expecting. There has just been it's just been a constant barrage of absolute chaos. So let's take this opportunity for publishers. Let's take the opportunity just. Just to have a breather, let's not generate outrage. Um, yeah, but certainly, I think audiences appreciate just slowing down a little bit in terms of um, man- well, not manufacturing that outrage. Let's 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 go a couple of months just without getting cross about something. It's never so, going to happen. Uh, actually, the mess we're in is all because Zeki died. Yeah, that's what this is yeah. all about. Yeah, um, it, it all went downhill after that. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it's never going to happen. We have an industry that relies on creating controversy where there isn't any. Uh, but, so but this, this is why at... there is such. This is why there is such a trust problem between the public and, and journalism because they're, they're, oh, yeah. the public sit there and say, "You are like you are manufacturing this." Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they love that um, because it means that everybody's slightly more partisan. It means that everybody has a favorite newspaper because their views are aligned with that paper's. So they're the ones that they'll pay to support. Let's let's have a summer holiday. Let's just all turn it all off for a month. It's it's never going to happen. But did you see <laughs> earlier this month? In fact, it might have been. Oh God, it was two days ago. Uh, Business Insider published a piece <laughs> that was about why barbecuing is bad, grilling is bad. It said, admit it, grilling is bad. And so uh, Ryan Broderick, uh, sort of Twitter comedian, freelance writer, said. Um, he rewrote a headline that said, we pay Walder think piece that says the thing you like is dog shit because the Google Facebook duopoly ate the whole digital ad market and now harvesting hate subscriptions is the only viable business model for online media. And that's the reality that we live in now. Are hate subscriptions actually a thing? 
Yeah, definitely. But you don't really? hate. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not hating the person that you subscribe to. You subscribe to them because you think that they are your kind of the bulwark against the things you hate. Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I would never give somebody money <laughs> like a spite subscription so I could see what they were doing. <laughs> No, I think the last we need to take over. This is we need a break. And after that coherent thought from all of us, um, mm-hmm. now for the news in brief. So, streaming services, including Netflix, Amazon, and Disney Plus, will soon have to invest between twenty to twenty-five percent of their French revenues in French content. And this is a new decree that's been unveiled by the French government. So, this yeah. is part of <laughs> part of an implementation of the Audiovisual Media Services Directive that has been put forward by the European Commission. And the, the aim is basically to level the playing field between the streaming giants and European players. This I, is... I actually think this is quite a good idea. Uh, well, it's but the, the, okay. So, the interesting part here is that it's you know it is being applied equally across everything. But this isn't new or no. particularly unique to France because Canada well, has done this for quite some time. With but, Fran- but France has been pushing French language content for decades. Oh yeah, completely. And, and, and there's you- a legitimate concern that the concern is that French as a language is subsumed by English. Yeah. These companies are making so much money from certain countries. Then actually, you kind of you need to reinvest a little bit back in there. They're not making any money. Well, <laughs> Netflix isn't. <laughs> oh, talking about controversy. <laughs> <laughs> Outbrain, Esther's favourite company in the whole world, next to Tabula. Apparently the New York Times' favourite company as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they got ripped on that. Anyway, Outbrain has failed for its own, very own IPO, uh, hoping to raise $100 million. Uh, the, <laughs> the New York Times article on this didn't miss them and hit the wall. Um, apart from that, they, they headlined it as clickbait giant. Um, they, <laughs> they described um, they described Outbrain as hoping to lure readers the way anglers use pieces of dead fish to lure other fish. <laughs> dead fish. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, that's worth a read. No matter what you think about Brain, that is worth a read. And moving on, Instagram, which um, Esther, I think you've noted, is as original as ever here, is developing its own version of Twitter's Superfollow with exclusive stories. So the platform is under pressure to develop more tools for creators because its competitors are edging ahead. TikTok in particular is kind of eating its lunch a little bit. However, changes to Instagram's algorithm are irritating some creators, particularly those with shops, because it's now demanding that users spend significantly more time on the platform in order to prioritize them in the feed. Unclear whether this will impact, say, publishers who have a strong Instagram presence, um, who presumably are spending all their time on there anyway. But the idea is that you have to now post significantly more in order to be, uh, yeah, up at the top of that algo. I think there's already know, enough tools on Instagram. It's, I, was, I was actually just about to say, it's, it's, it's got really complicated. I actually, the number of times I have to Google how to do something on Instagram, Peter, I it got starts it. to get silly. I got it, Peter. Um, in a very odd twist of fate, Windows 11's newsfeed widget will apparently come with a new offer a tip button. Apart from the fact that Windows 11 shouldn't actually ever exist because Windows 10 was supposed to be the operating system to end all operating systems, mm-hmm. um, this new offer a tip button is going to let readers support content creators and publishers from this from their little newsfeed widget. So at the moment, there are no plans for Microsoft to collect a commission on the donations, but it could turn out that Windows is actually ends up being the pioneer of micropayments. Yeah, it's 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 bizarre that it came from this quarter. I'm just wondering if, I'm just wondering oh. if embedding it at kind of the OS level is the way to go. 
I've, I've always said this, it was, but I, I assumed it would be Google that ended up doing it and then they abandoned their test. They also did the Android app thing as well. Yeah, 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 well, I remember that. Uh, John, this is a great story. Journalism.co.uk has launched a pilot program to help small news publishers or smaller news publishers experiment with new tools and strategies. The Newsroom Innovation Mentorship Program will pair experienced professionals with local and regional journalists in the UK who are passionate about innovation in the newsroom. Anything that helps us. And well done, Journalism.co.uk. Yeah, really, really well done. And ambitious for you guys. Brilliant. Love it. Meanwhile, GB News viewer numbers have completely tanked over the past couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, so this is this potentially goes some way to explaining why Andrew Neil took his um, quote unquote summer break as early as he did. Um, it's two weeks after he joined, doesn't it? Two weeks after the channel launched, um, which is sus- suspect. Let's put it that way, particularly in light of what's happened with his viewing figures. Um, yeah, basically, it's just getting absolutely destroyed by the channels that aim to disrupt. So the BBC this week has taken down an article aimed at children, I think it was on their revision site, that seemingly extolled the potential benefits of climate change, including mm-hmm. better weather for exercising, easier access <laughs> to remote oil reserves, and new holiday destinations. Yeah. Oh, you got to love that northern sea route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finally, the Northwest Passage is open. Benefit. Like there's there's commitment to balance, <laughs> and then, but you don't need to you don't need to apply that to climate change. So this week I spoke with Chris Duncan, the CEO of Bowie UK. So he talks about the differences in working magazine media after spending over a decade at News UK and how Bauer's business priorities have changed post-pandemic. But I started by asking him what it was like joining and having to steer the company just as lockdown hit. Actually, I joined three weeks after Bauer had left the building, uh, which in some ways makes it, it was a very different experience for me because I, I actually changed companies. I'd never worked in the Bauer offices like everybody else had. So I, it, to me, it was like joining a company from your bedroom um, <laughs> from day one. I, I think uh, the team had done an amazing job by the time I arrived of, you know, they, they'd sort of scattered uh, to the four winds and worked out almost all of the early kind of teething problems. So it was. I sort of joined a company from a spare bedroom um, that had almost solved the kind of continuity problem, and it was. It was. Uh, yeah, it's been an extraordinary year of sort of um, gradually then getting to know people only on video, um, communicating remotely. Uh, it wasn't till really sort of maybe six or seven months in that you, you were able to sort of physically meet people, and I, I still have met. Uh, I don't know a handful. You know, less than probably ten percent of the. The, the, the teams actually physically uh, 15 months later. I mean, that's got to be really challenging settling into a CEO role when you can't meet anybody. Yeah, it's a, it is. And actually, it, it probably depends on um, uh, the team you're working with. I think everybody was amazing. Uh, they made me very welcome. They went out their way to kind of uh, make it easier for me to, to, to get to understand the business. And um, yeah, after, I mean, like everybody at the same time, Everyone was finding remote working strange. Um, and so you just sort of fitted in with that, really. But it was, uh, yeah, it, it'll be an unrepeatable um, experience, I would have thought, that you would choose to join uh, an entirely new company, as I say, from your spare bedroom. Yeah. So what sort of thing, COVID aside, what, what have you been focused on this year? Well, I mean, first of all, it, it was, as you might expect, it was kind of just, can we can we keep the lights on? Can we keep the business running? Um, I think my first week revenue was down something like 80% from where it was expected to be. So 
you know, in that first sort of April uh, piece, it was it was a lot of just, you know, what does this look like? It took quite a while, uh, if you remember, for sort of three or four months really to work out how it was going to affect the business. Um, you know, we thought we might lose a lot of distribution and, and, and we didn't really. Um, you know, we thought we would uh, see the advertising market uh, get very volatile and it certainly did. Um, so, so I guess a, a lot of the, the start point was just me getting up to speed with the business while trying to make sure it was it understood what was about to happen. We spent yeah. a lot of time focusing on um, just the cultural aspects of running a business under that condition. Um, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about how it is for the teams and and whether our processes would hold together and uh, you know a lot of pieces about mental health and support for that, how we could support teams through it. So it's things that you would probably not normally. Um, I guess we expected to spend a bunch of time on, and then the more traditional things of, of uh, you know, how did we, how do we make sure that we um, not only adjusted to the fact that there was the crisis, but made the most out of um, of the time that that gave us to think about where the business was going. So, I guess we made, um, as as you know, some some fairly tough decisions early on uh, about some of the titles in the in the Bauer business, um, but then it was really about thinking. How do we capitalize on the subscriptions growth, um, e-commerce growth and affiliates? You know, how do we make sure that the digital and um, audio elements of our business uh, could thrive, you know, alongside the kind of the, the print part um, and, and, you know, do as good a job as we could of kind of navigating our way through it? Yeah, yeah. I noticed there was um, there were obviously some fairly early closures. I hate to use the term um, making the best of a, a crisis, but there were also I think you you also had some sort of subscription increases. There were some good things. So almost I, I know things aren't settled, and there's a huge amount of upheaval in the UK. But if there been some kind of longer term changes in terms of business priorities, like you've got a greater focus on subscriptions now. Or... Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing is I, I don't think I'm not sure there are many things that COVID created. I think it accelerated a number of trends that were already there. Um, and so there were some titles, the titles that unfortunately we had to, uh, we had to close um, were those that would have got to that position in the next two years. Um, I think some of the changes in, in the advertising revenue mix and the type of work that advertisers are doing, it, 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 it's changed, but it was coming anyway. Um, and I think subscriptions is similar that we'd already seen you know, strong growth in subscriptions um, and a kind of balancing in a lot of cases with our specialist titles, you know, they are now predominantly subscription and direct titles compared to being uh, predominantly newsstand titles. So, so all of those really were trends that we sort of jumped from 2020 to 2023 in a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, r- rather than, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, that what we saw was like a complete fork in the road and things happened that we could never have predicted. They just happened at a speed that we probably hadn't predicted. Yeah. Um, newsstand, do you, do you anticipate that coming back at all? Or how, how, how's that been the last year? Well, it actually held up quite well for, for some of the titles. I mean, gardening titles have been in growth. Um, yeah. Puzzles titles had a great uh, year last year for obvious reasons. So, you know, then, then I think when you get to titles like our TV listings titles, you know, we saw a bit of a, um, some of the distribution wasn't there. But, um, but gradually, they held up incredibly well, I think, in the circumstances. Um, I think we've been probably seen slightly different performance amongst impulse titles because we, you know, footfall in supermarkets, I think, is 25% of what it was. Um, and so that's the areas, uh, footfall in, in retail, um, travel as an estate, 
Um, you know, those are the areas where I think you can say, yes, I think that'll come back over time. Um, but the rest of it actually held up, uh, you know, I would say remarkably well. It's not an easy thing to hit in, uh, an industry that was already struggling in terms of business models and trying to work things out. No, no, no. But as I said, that's um, n- none of that was, um, none, of the, none of the challenges I think that we had to navigate our way through were necessarily new news. No, no. And how have you found the transition from, uh, you had over a decade at, um, at a national news brand, um, but you're now working with some of the UK's biggest magazines. So have, have there been challenges in adapting to the, I suppose, the difference in the markets or are the industry mechanics actually largely the same? Um, that's a good question. The, I, I think from like a thousand feet high, they're the same. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of, we create content, we curate it, we package it, we distribute it. You know, the, the business model challenges are quite similar. Um, the transformation kind of uh, agendas are quite similar. There is obviously a huge difference in just the frequency, the kind of, um, I think the focus of, of a daily news business is is uh, quite different. Different pace, I suppose. Well, I th- yeah, and, and the fact that, you know, by lunchtime, your whole kind of um, plan for the day, for that edition could have changed. Um, and that happens fairly regularly in, in news. I, th- I think also news has a, you know, it has in some ways sort of two sets of audience that it talks to. It talks to the, the establishment and it talks to its audience. So I guess one of the things I've noticed coming over to the magazine world is that there's a really kind of, firstly, Bauer has incredible breadth. So I, I, I've got around 120 magazines, um, you know, when you add up all the different titles and subtitles, all of which have a very clear idea of the audience that they're talking to and the reason that they, you know, they're there and the sort of services and information that they that they can provide. So you've got this incredible breadth. At the same time, because of that, each of them is at a really, you know, a really high level uh, of detail uh, and, and sort of precision to talk to that audience. So I think that's different. National news quite often outside of the, the, the daily coverage, the sort of lifestyle coverage is, is quite often now, you know, pretty short on pagination and quite often quite short on detail. So, um, so no, that breadth and the depth, I think, is is really noticeable. And in the breadth side, for me, um, if you can imagine 10 years in um, uh, in national news, you can probably quote that you've probably got six competitors um, and you can quote their daily sale. Um, and then suddenly, if you go into suddenly 100 and something markets, each with a competitive set, um, each with a different set of sales and um, uh, trajectory of those sales. Uh, that that that's quite a lot to take in at the start. Um, so it takes you a while to get a real sort of a feel, I think, for each of those individual markets and how they how they interact. I mean, how do you do that over Zoom? <laughs> you buy a very big home printer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you know, if, if you're in the office, you could you could literally walk around the different floors and, and talk to people. But it's I, I guess you must have to be a lot more intentional about getting to know. I mean, 120 titles. That's like. That's a meeting every other day. Well, I think that's 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 probably you hit the nail on the head, which is I think that is the nature of remote working is you do have to be very you, you know everything you do sort of has to be planned in, um, so it is slightly harder to um, to pick up information by accident. Uh, you don't bump into people in the canteen. That's actually the bit that I think I've really missed. Um, you know, I, I've worked very closely with a relatively small number of people, uh, but what you don't have is conversations in the lift and in the in the canteen and kind of on the way out of the building. Uh, that give you those little kind of insights into into different teams in the business. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to getting that back. Yeah. 
Um, we actually, we often quote you on the podcast. Um, there was an interview you gave back in, uh, I think it's 2017, where you said um, you couldn't see a future where there were any more than 10 publishers who'd be able to charge customers for a direct subscription. Do you still believe that? Or do you think actually that the market and consumers have, have changed over the last couple of years? Well, firstly, I get quoted on that a lot. And I never actually yeah. said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What I said at the time was I, I did I thought there would be ten no more than ten um, global newsrooms that could support um, via subscription a full uh, kind of newsroom by which I meant foreign desks you know sports lifestyle the whole the whole kind of um, uh, everything that you needed to be a, a really great kind of global newspaper and so I think that probably is still true I think that you're seeing you know it will be the journal uh, the New York Times the Post. Uh, potentially from the UK, you might say the Times, the Telegraph. Um, there aren't that, you know, there might be a couple of um, German titles that, that will get to that kind of number. So I think that's still true. I think the the investment required to run a world-class um, news organisation that covers every subject um, is immense, and there won't be many people that can sustain that um, in that way. I think the um, the quotes often used as if I said there would only be 10, 10 newspapers left in, in, in a <laughs> few years time and that really wasn't what I meant the, the good news I think is that actually since then what has so, so the, the point I was trying to make I think was that there would be 10 that would get very big probably global um, there will be a lot of newsrooms that could focus on a local beat or a, a kind of a small national beat or a really uh, specialist area that could make subscriptions work but it would be really difficult for those people in the middle the sort of mid-range um, uh, companies they weren't big enough to go global but they weren't small enough to have a low cost base uh, I thought that would be really difficult to sustain and I think that probably has been uh, borne out I, I think then that comes back to, to you know where I am now where absolutely I think there is a future for sustaining uh, specialist magazines or you know uh, because they have a really committed community they have content that's hard to find elsewhere uh, they're brilliantly written. They're carefully edited with a real kind of empathy for the audience. Um, and that's that's really the kind of secret source, I think, for building good subscription businesses. Um, so I think still at that that end, if you're focused on, you know, being the absolute Bible for uh, a group of people or a community of interest, um, I think subscription can work. Um, I would still bet in five years time, if there's more than 10 real global newsrooms, um, you can quote me as being wrong. <laughs> OK, well, you know, pencil that one in. Have you seen over the last sort of maybe three or four years a, a bit more of a willingness among consumers to pay for, I suppose, magazines and, and newspapers? Well, I, I think there was a period. There was definitely a period, probably a generation um, where there was a there was a huge resistance. Um, but you probably are going back now really to, I mean, to 2010 or so. It was very difficult to, to pay on the Internet. Um, you know, I think we forget that things like uh, Apple Pay and Amazon Pay and all the other ways to pay, PayPal really, um, as a default being integrated with every single kind of type of media subscription, that these things that have reduced the friction of, of paying for things have helped. I think there's been a huge normalization of streaming services. Um, you know, you're going to pay for podcasts, you're paying for TV. So it, it, it will feel much more normal to, to at least have the choice to pay for premium content. Um, and probably also the, the other thing that that's, was always a challenge was that there was so much free content available that could be sustained by open marketplace advertising. 
um, and probably what we're seeing certainly now, and I would guess over the next few years, is it you know that that is going to dry up a great deal, um, which means actually that that there will be a choice of advertising funded content, and there'll be a choice of premium content, and I think most consumers are uh, pretty happy given that choice if the price is right to to put their hands in their pockets. Yeah. I can't have the conversation. I mean, you've already mentioned sort of um, Apple there, but what's your kind of take on, I suppose, how publishers' are, relationship has now changed with platforms like Facebook, Apple, Google? Like, there's a lot of international conflict, but I, I just wondered from a, a sort of CEO of a publishing company point of view, how you perceive those platforms now? Well, I, th- I think there's, um, I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time, I think, on this over over probably, you're right, 10, uh, 10 to 15 years. And You've seen the relationships with the platforms change hugely from the kind of matchmaker uh, relationship. So we're, you know, we're it's an incredible source of traffic, and there's no there's no cost to that. Um, into later, you know, kind of becoming much more walled gardens, then starting to build product on top of the content that was within the walled gardens, and you know, gradually you could see that sort of the, the market dominance growing and the relationship changing. I think we're in a really interesting period now, which is that um, what, what has taken a long time to happen is that uh, government and regulators have understood, I think, what publishers were trying to explain, which is this is an inter- essentially this is an intellectual property question. Uh, yeah. Is it possible for us to sustainably produce intellectual property um, if we are if we are unable, if you like, to uh, protect the returns from it? And I think it's interesting. Coming from certainly certainly news, I think it started to make that case. I think magazines probably have, have um, maybe sat in the shadow of news in terms of making that case. Um, but I but I think the consultations that the government is going to get to in you know later this year around the digital markets unit will be really important to kind of set a, a code of conduct and a sort of uh, uh, how we see the the, the internet um, developing for publishers. Um, so I I, I think. You know, you feel like there have been a number of generational kind of shifts in the relationship with the platforms. Where we'll always end up is that they are a brilliant, um, uh, you know, they are a brilliant piece of technology. Um, they have incredible functionality that um, most of the readers of most of our titles uh, use every day. Um, and so they are a part of our lives as publishers. Um, we'd hope for a little bit of a, um, a, a better landscape a sort of a fairer playing field in terms of the protection of ip um and you know a long and sustainable relationship with those platforms so i think that was a very long answer to, to your question I, I think um i think it has been um over the last 10 years sometimes a real struggle to think that publishers were making it clear what the issues were i i feel like we're out of that bit now i think we're into the real challenging bit now which is people saying well that, i get it how exactly would we construct this world um, to get the best balance of, uh, you know, competition, fairness, a level playing field and protection for intellectual property? Uh, that's that's probably the work that's ahead of us uh, the next year or so. I'd love to actually hear a bit more about Bauer's Kickstart program. Yeah, because especially how that's been going over the last year. Sure. I mean, I mean, I, I, I can't take credit for that. It's actually Rishi Sunak's um, Kickstarter. Okay. <laughs> So this, um, for us, came out of, we've done a great deal of work this year on uh, diversity and inclusion. And one of the pillars of our program for that was around social mobility. And it, it's one of the more challenging um, areas, actually, to, to measure and to think about how do we get people into the, the publishing uh, media. 
you know, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds um, and how do we make sure that we can identify them and recruit them um, and take advantage of their talents. And the government actually had come up with a Kickstarter scheme, or it might be Kickstart, um, where the government will fund for a period of time um, uh, candidates from, from disadvantaged backgrounds who will then come into uh, the business. And I think they're on sort of three or six month rotations. And then, you know, we, we try where we can to, to um, take them in as, as roles into the business. I think we took 10 uh, early, early part of um, uh, last year. And I think six of them ended up in full-time roles of the business. So for oh. us, it's, uh, it's been a really fantastic um, pipeline of talent, amazing people um, who bring a, you know, a different view um, to our titles. Um, they're, they're, you know, naturally kind of multimedia gifted. Um, but just, just for us, a kind of diversity of, um, of contributors to the magazine. So um, no, we're, we're big supporters of the scheme. We've just taken on uh, the next kind of wave and already people are sort of phoning me up saying, can I get, you know, can I have the next one that comes in? Can I have the next few? So I, I think yeah. we'll be uh, very good customers for the government, but it's, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the scheme. I think, it's, I think it's one of those areas where you look at it and think only the government could really have got that scheme off the ground and we're delighted to be able to help with it. Yeah, because I just noticed when you're when you're applying, you don't have to have any formal qualifications. So I just wonder, at, what, at that point, what do you what do you look for? I mean, it's it's attitude. Um, I think the curiosity, the willingness to learn, um, you know, the interest in being uh, being in the publishing industry, getting into the media industry. Um, so really, that's you know, in some ways, if you look at if you look at all of the great um, journalists I've ever worked with. Those qualities are the ones that got them through their career. I don't think it was um, it was necessarily their educational qualifications. It was always they were the hungriest, uh, the most curious, the most willing to learn new things, and that's that's really what we're looking for in the in the next generation. Hopefully, as things start to settle down, what are you doing to prepare Bauer to be successful for the next? I don't know. Let, let's say ten years. <laughs> At least. <laughs> so so I mean we we we're working really hard. I think on. Uh, this year, I'm making sure we've got a we've got a big project which is actually global, you know, across different territories in Bar, which is looking at uh, how we make sure we've got kind of world class editorial tools, um, and we're, we're, so we're building new tools for the uh, the teams to use to publish the titles. Um, thinking about how that works for multi channel publishing, you know, how it works with different formats, um, but also how it works with just the way that um, you know the workflows of our titles work now. Um, we have a big project looking at subscriptions, um, which is working out how do we build different, slightly different products. Um, you know, how do we think about bundling things with our editions? Um, if, if you start from the principle that we're sort of serving the communities of interest, uh, you know, how, how, how much bigger can we think about the products and services that we could bring um, under those, those sort of brands to market? So we, we're doing work with that. We're looking at... Um, data and uh, the sort of advertising side of data. So we're building uh, advertising network tools to protect ourselves against changes to the cookie regulations um, and to help us sort of think about the whole of the network of Bauer. And then I guess, you know, the fourth, the, the fourth one is really thinking about the culture that the company has to have. You know, how do we build the leadership we're going to need um, if, if we're, you know, we're going to be working differently in the future than we were before. But you know, how do we make sure we can uh, deliver brilliant products for our audiences and, and you know, lead the company in a, uh, to a culture that, that helps everybody feel that this is a great place to work and that, you know, we are really 
uh, fixated, I think, on producing brilliant, brilliant uh, magazine products for our for our readers. So you're not busy at all then. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's actually one of the challenges at the moment is I think we've been able. I mean, I have I have remarked on this a lot with with the teams internally that we we have been able to take on, I think, such a number of projects um, during the last sort of six to nine months. Um, partly, I guess, because we're we're not spending any time saying good morning to each other. So uh, I, I do think there will be, you know, as 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 we start to get back um, to to offices and and to you know more kind of um, a, a more slightly more normal experience of working, I hope we've really taken this time to kind of lay the foundations for that next ten years, as you uh, as you alluded to. And then finally, we ask all our guests, what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? Do you know what? I read. Um, I just finished reading the the Stalingrad uh, book, the Anthony Beaver book about Stalingrad, um, which I found relaxing, even though it doesn't sound it doesn't sound very relaxing. Yeah. But, um, it's an astonishing book, and just well, it, it sounds very trite, but I think you know we're all conscious at the moment of sacrifices that we're making, um, you know, to to the way that we're working or the way that we are with our families and all the rest of it, and. I think uh, that is a book that it, it sets the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. Just that you can't really conceive of something like that really happening over the period that it did. And we were talking about subscriptions earlier in this episode. And if you do want to subscribe to Movie Voices for more of this um, slightly opinionated, I'd say, but not controversial content, then you can go to co-fi.com forward slash media voices. Uh, you can either give us a one-off donation or you can pick the monthly subscription option. Regardless, if you do choose to support us in any way, just know that we're incredibly grateful and it goes straight back into the podcast. Take out a hate subscription. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're desperate for more Media Voices content, why wouldn't you be? Sign up for our daily newsletter. It's got four of the most important movie stories of the day as curated by one of us. And of course, a link to the latest episode. And at the moment, we're looking for some feedback. So if you like it, if you hate it, if you want more controversy, <laughs> uh, just reply to the newsletter and tell us what you think. Please tell us. But until next week, when we'll be back with another fantastic guest and some more opinions, goodbye. Goodbye. Ta-ta.